read this uh, essay, I guess it was, uh, a couple of weeks ago in the paper. It's kind of interesting. It was written by this, uh, she's a writer actually. I think she, I think she mostly writes fiction. Her name is uh, Suzanne Finnamore. That's really all I know about her. Um, but this essay she wrote wasn't fiction. It was about her mother who has dementia. Uh, final stages of dementia. She's 86, uh, was diagnosed about 10 years ago. And she describes how devastating it was, number one, I guess, uh, with the diagnosis, although not totally surprised. And then she describes how tough these 10 years have been, especially the first couple of years, even though the last couple, she's gotten worse. The first few years were, were tougher for her, for the daughter. In this article, um, she talks about how she's tried to change or adjust how she sees her mom's situation, an objectively bad situation. But she's tried to force herself to see it in a different light, not a you know, delusional light, but a healthy light. She says this, I've come to see dementia as a place a place where my mother lives, not who she is. Thinking of it this way allows for magic to happen some days. Once in a while, she'll remember me and my name. And when she does, we celebrate. Each time I go to see her, it's different. When she remembers, and she's good, it's a gift. I've learned to ex set expectations aside when they come my way. No, I just appreciate the unexpected gifts when they come my way. I'm grateful that she's been able to stay in her own home. That's a gift. And the more time I spend, and the more time I spend in dementia, the more I pay attention to my own mortality, says the daughter. I prize, I prize this, and I've rearranged my priorities to include less screen time and more joy, experiencing the real world, putting nothing off. Another gift. My mother was recently approved for home hospice care and her nurse and chaplain are unspeakably kind. More gifts. They're teaching me about the beauty of dying on one's own terms, surrounded by family, and they're showing us how to let go. I think it comes down to this, she says. There is dignity in dementia if we say there is. There is wisdom and humor and radiance if only we see it. I make the effort because it's what my mother deserves after a long life well lived.
You know, I think she's on to something. This pursuit or practice of gratitude. Like despite the objective bad stuff. In this article, she doesn't deny the worst of her mom's situation and its effect on all of them. The sadness, the illness itself, the decline, the increasing like loss of her. But despite all that, and this is really her point in the article is, she just pursues reasons for thankfulness. And it's about realizing those gifts and naming them as they appear in the midst of terrible stuff. And I don't know if she's a, this writer, I don't know if she's a person of faith, but let's use her story. Her mom's disease, her cross, and approach it with a perspective of gratitude. I think when we do that, we see God at work in all the chapters of life. Obviously the good, but also the bad, and maybe especially the bad. It's easy to see God in the good, right? But to see God in the bad, isn't that really probably more important, more needed? more appreciated. The writer um, John Updike uh, is a novelist. He wrote this poem um, after a serious illness of his own. And it's really about what the illness taught him. It's called Fever. This is what it says. I have brought back a good message from the land of 102 degrees. God exists. I had seriously doubted it before, but the bedposts spoke of it with utmost confidence, and the threads in my blanket took it for granted, and the tree outside the window dismissed all complaints, and I have not slept so justly for years. It is a truth now known that some secrets are hidden from health. Some secrets are hidden from health. Unless we pursue them. unless we go looking for those secrets. And you discover them in the hospital bed or the land of dementia that that daughter described. 10 lepers are cured. Only one returns to say thanks. I wonder why. I wonder why, why was he different? I mean, Jesus highlights the fact that he was a foreigner, 
But even beyond that, maybe that had nothing to do with it. What was it with this guy that made him different from the other nine? They all had the same awful disease. They all presumably you know, lived together in this horrible place. Why did he come back and say thanks? I don't know, maybe in the midst of his awful experience of leprosy, he was still able to be grateful. Maybe he was able to be grateful for the, the kindness of the other lepers he lived with. Oh, when people, healthy people, would come to the outskirts of where they, you know, the, the leper colony, maybe good people left food or notes of, of, of hope and encouragement. And in the midst of the misery of leprosy or dementia or a hospital room, maybe this one leper, just he was able to kind of cut through the darkness and just still be grateful at moments. And because of that, he knew, I gotta go back, I gotta go back and thank him. There's a great uh, spiritual writer, I, I read his stuff pretty regularly, I steal from him almost constantly. He's got great ideas, um, his name is Ron, uh, Ronald Rollheiser. A religious order priest. Just he writes a lot. He's a teacher. Lectures a lot. Ten years ago, he uh, was diagnosed with cancer, uh, and it was treatable, but it was going to require surgery and then and then chemo, uh, and then about six months of well, during about six months of pretty intense recovery. So he said to himself, "Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna really make." these six months valuable. I mean, they're gonna be objective, obviously valuable because they're gonna save his life, but you know, having to slow down, I'll make that a good thing and I'll, I'll actively pursue being more patient and more prayerful and I'll reach out to friends and people that I've, you know, should have been closer to and more in contact with over the years. I'm just not going to take life for granted the way I once did. And he just actively tried to do that, almost like a, like a spiritual, emotional boot camp. Make some good come of this tough time. And he said, uh, well, first of all, it was all successful, the surgery. And he said he had some success with the boot camp, but not, not, certainly not completely. He, before long, he started kind of going back to same of the, some of the same old ways. But he said he also did discover things, things he wasn't even looking for. This is what he says. Having cancer taught me some lessons other than the ones that I'd planned. Most important among these was this. Like everybody else in the world, I've always wanted happiness in my life. Friendship, love, celebration. But I felt that the joy and celebration that I always longed for could, co could only come my way when I was finally free from all anxiety and emotional tension, pressure, overwork, illness, 
frustration, stress of all kinds. He says, we nurse a great line. We nurse, the, we nurse this strange fantasy that it's only after all of our bills are paid and our health is perfect and all tensions within our families are resolved and we're in a peaceful space that we can finally enter life and enjoy it. In the meantime, we put our lives on hold as we perpetually gear up and get ready and wait for that perfect moment to arrive when we can finally enjoy life. He says, while undergoing cancer treatments, I learned something. When I first started the treatments, I began marking a calendar. Day one, day two, day three, consciously putting my life on hold, putting myself into a posture of waiting, marking away the days until, in my fantasy, the treatments ended and I could live life again. But strangely, as the days unfolded, to my surprise, I found that I was living through one of the richer and happier periods in my life. Inside of the tiredness and the nausea and the neuropathy, I was finding a rich enjoyment in friendships and colleagues, work, and on days when I could actually taste them, food and drink. The six months within which I was undergoing cancer treatment turned out to be, to my surprise, six happy and deeply meaningful months. These people are all saying the same thing. Like the terrible times don't have to be completely terrible. And I think if we have grateful hearts, in spite of the darkness of life's chapters, we can find light in the dark. If we've kind of got a, a, a grateful instinct, if we can be the one leper who thought enough to come back and say thanks, this guy, John Shea, he's a Jesuit priest, he says this, life includes suffering. And when you're spending all your energies to only rejoice in that part of life that doesn't include suffering, you won't enter into life because you'll be dominated by fear and exclusion and not faith. And easier said than done, right? But I think it's the way to do it. Grateful hearts. Uh, Cicero, I guess, was an ancient philosopher, Roman philosopher. He said this, I love this quote. He says, gratitude is not only the greatest of virtues, but the parent of all others. He's right. 